0: Hey, Democracy in Danger listeners, this is Robert Armengol, the show's producer. Thank you so much for staying with us this summer as we develop some exciting new content for season three. As you know, we've been rebroadcasting some of our best shows, but this week we wanted to bring you a special treat. It's actually not our show, but a recent episode from a sister program in our podcast network, The Democracy Group. So keep those earbuds on and enjoy what we're about to queue up. It's an interview with the writer Ann Applebaum. She spoke recently in a live public forum with the hosts of Penn State's Democracy Works.
1: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Chris Bean.
2: I'm Candace Watts-Smith.
3: I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking with Anne Applebaum, who is a writer for The Atlantic, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, and uh, author of several books, including the the most recent Twilight of Democracy, which was the subject of a lecture that she gave recently, uh, a virtual lecture she gave for us here at Penn State. And uh, that is what we're going to hear today. So this episode is is a, is a little bit different. Um, we're going to hear a little bit of Anne's prepared remarks and then a, a Q&A that I did with her in front of a Zoom audience. So Chris, you, I know you introduced Anne for that event and have really been um, covering a lot of these themes about democratic erosion in a class you're teaching this semester.
1: Right, right. It's called Democratic Erosion. I've been a uh, an Applebaum fan for a long time. I think she is a really terrific writer, really thoughtful. Uh, and her uh, knowledge, especially of the uh, former Soviet Union, former Eastern Bloc, and then the transition of those countries into... Well, whatever they are now, right, Uh, maybe not democracies, but at least not communist, has been really, really interesting. But then the other thing is that she's taking these experiences and the decline of democracy in Poland, the decline of the sense of hope and uh, optimism, that was part of the end of uh, of the, the the solidarity movement and the end of of communism in so in Poland and what had happened to that and how things have just kind of disintegrated into this kind of new form of author- authoritarianism
2: so i th- i think that these comparative cases are really helpful because as um Ann talks about in her lecture that You know, democracy is not inevitable. And we Americans tend to think that it is, Um, that, you know, we've seen lots of years of stable elections. And I mean, I guess we could quibble about, well, when did the United States become an actual democracy? But there's this talk about, you know, we we have a sense that it's just going to keep it moving. But democracy is hard work. It's in some way almost a conflict of interest, you could say, um, to, on some level. And so I'm. It it is helpful to look at the patterns of the fall and the erosion of democracies in other places because we are, in the United States, also susceptible to many of those things. One of the things, for example, is, which seems like a really small thing, is that people aren't talking to their friends and family that they used to talk to. And I, it makes me think of that book um, on tyranny where one of the kind of small but important steps is that you stop talking to your neighbor and you stop talking to, you You stop trusting each other as, as a signal. Um, yeah. That, that things can go badly.
1: Yeah. And, and that the only operative uh, question: uh, In terms of who are your friends, who are you going to talk to? Is are you with the powers that be, or are you against them? And um, and so she talks about in this in this article, which is also the first chapter of the book, about this party she threw in Poland on December thirty first, nineteen ninety nine, and how exciting it was, and what a sense of 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 dynamism was around this country and this unleashing of, of this long past goes all the way back to the civil, to the world war II, and then the uh, Soviet domination. And, you know, some of these people were extremely close to her, like a a godmother of one of her child children. Mm -hmm. And now they don't
2: talk to each other
1: and it is um, you're right. It is really
2: sad and disturbing. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think that is worth highlighting is that we talk a lot about division in society, and we do have a great—you know—we have plenty of evidence of political polarization among elites, and how just uh, you know, just regular people are are very polarized. But one of the things I think is really important and i think it's maybe i'm i'm maybe projecting is near to Anne's concern is that the division on the right in particular is not just kind of like conservatives versus extra conservatives but is right right she says she says at some point um you can't uh, someone who is against their own government cannot be considered a, a conservative and so the division that she highlights is between Republicans who care about elections, rule of law and democracy and those who do not.
3: So, you know, it's it's interesting to think about these these divisions and it, it's clearly as you'll hear in our conversation something Anne thinks about a lot one of the things i, I talk with her about is this kind of movement both on the far right to create uh, something like a patriot party and also uh, a more recent development um, to create kind of a, a center-right coalition so uh, she has thoughts uh, on that and and lots of other things so let's go now uh, to the conversation with Anne applebaum
4: I think one of the great mistakes that we made um, over the last several decades was precisely that we believed this promise of inevitability. Um, We believed that, you know, democracy was a thing like running water, you know, that you just, you didn't have to do very much. Um, You could just let some professional politicians do their jobs and you could get on with, I don't know, making money or painting pictures or whatever it is that you wanted to do. And like running water coming out of a tap, you wouldn't have to make any special effort to make democracy work. And this was, of course, you know, this was the, you know, that famously misinterpreted essay, um, The End of History, that was written, this famous essay by Francis Fukuyama that was written you know, after the 1989 revolutions, this feeling that history is over, liberal democracy is inevitable, none of us have to try very hard anymore because everything's going in America's direction. This was a huge mistake. It's in some ways an understandable mistake because it reflected the experience of everybody who was alive at that time, at the time the essay was written. Um, You know, in 1989 or 1990, If you were living in the United States, or even if you were living in in Europe, you had just lived through several decades of democratic success, not just American success, but the the camp of American democracies. Um, And you had seen one wave after the next of countries, you know, having democratic revolutions, deciding to become democracies for Southern Europe, then Eastern Europe, um, you know, East Asia, um, you know, South America, Africa, you know, one one region after the next followed in this path. And so, you know, it was very natural to think in 1990 that this is just the way things are and the way they're always gonna be. But this is of course, not how the founding fathers of the United States thought. And they're not how anybody who's ever studied democracy very hard thought. Um, if you If you go back and look at what the men who wrote the constitution in 1789 were talking about, it's it's truly fascinating because they were very focused, I mean, fixated on ancient Greece and Rome. Um, these were the, the democracies um, that they were using as models. And what they were particularly focused on was the, the era of the Roman Republic. So it wasn't about the Roman Empire. It was about the era of the Roman Republic and the fall of, of that Republic. And they were all reading either, you know, either translations or in some cases kind of, popularized versions of texts by Cato and Cicero, who were the two great of two of the great writers of that era. And they were using their experiences to feed into their understanding of democracy. They understood that democracy was circular, or that politics is circular, history is circular, and, and you know, and things, you know, nothing is, nothing is inevitable, and there are no upward trajectories. And one of the reasons they designed are now somewhat rickety constitution the way they did was because they wanted there to be a balance of power. They didn't want the executive to be too either too strong or too weak. And what they were thinking about all the time was the how democracy had fallen in ancient Rome, how the people had become entranced by Caesar, the demagogue, and how the Roman Republic had lost its democratic essence. And so this this idea that democracy is inevitable, which has I think been very dangerous, um, because it made us all—you know—we all took our eyes off the ball. We didn't pay attention um, as our some of our institutions grew weaker, as voting participation dropped, as the as radicalism grew, uh, growing out of this—you know—this disappointment that I've described. Um, we lost. We took our eye off the ball, and we didn't, and and we didn't do anything about it. So, if I was going to leave you with one idea it's that that although I wrote a book called Twilight of Democracy, and although I, I guess I'm, I write some pretty gloomy articles um, in the Atlantic and elsewhere, I wanted to leave you with the reflection that history is always radically open and that nothing is inevitable, neither decline is inevitable. Is, there is no reason why either the United States or Western Europe or Eastern Europe have to decline. There's no reason why our civilization needs to end but nor is there any reason why it will definitely succeed. There is no, you know, there's nothing magic about our form of democracy or our form of civilization. You know, it too can come to an end. Um, And the, the, you know, and the difference between it succeeding or failing is of course a million different decisions taken by people like you you know people in this audience who are interested who are who are active citizens um, and participating in democracy in in local democracy in regional democracy in state democracy or joining inst- you know uh, political institutions or even non-political institutions um, that you know that, that that put you in contact with you know your, your fellow citizens Um, This is a really important civic act. You know, we need to stop treating democracy like it's running water. And instead, it's more as if it's, you know, we have to, we actually have to walk over to the well, we have to pull the water out with a rope, and then we have to carry the bucket, you know, back to the house if we want to have water. Um, We should think about it as something that we all have to participate in, that we, you know, we will have to make some effort. In Twilight of Democracy, you write about how
3: the Cold War and the fight against communism was something of a unifying force for liberals and conservatives. Can you say more about that and how those dynamics changed once the Cold War ended?
4: Yeah, I do think, um, particularly in retrospect, I mean, there's, there are two senses in which the Cold War consensus was very important. Um, one, as you say, it put liberals and conservatives in at least one narrow sphere of issues. It put them on the same side. So although there were deviations at different times and there were different arguments made in the sixties and there were arguments about, you know, Vietnam, whether this was a good, you know, this was a good way to oppose communism or not. I mean, but there was a, there was a general consensus in the, in both political parties that we were a democracy and that we were opposed to you know, dictatorship and totalitarianism, you know, as it existed, particularly in, in at least in that form um, in many parts of the world. And that gave some element of consistency and created a basis for um, for common, you know, um, you know, for a common foreign policy, at least um, for, you know, for many decades. I mean, we didn't always agree on everything else. And, you know, as I said, I, I, I'm I'm generalizing here to make the point. But yeah, I do think it created at least one area of of common consensus. I mean, there's another way in which it functioned, um, you, know, in the, you know, not only did it create some consensus inside the United States, it also created consensus inside the Republican Party. Both of our political parties have always been grand coalitions and they contain huge ranges of people. Um, but the Republican Party in particular has always had a big range um, from, it includes libertarians, you know, social conservatives, so-called country club Republicans, you know, who are just, you know, want the establishment to stay there, people who are who care about big business, people who care about small business, you know, whose whose interests are sometimes not aligned, you know, and in more recent years, quite a lot of blue-collar um, voters as well, you know, that's a big, strange ideological group to keep together. And one of the things that did keep it together in the past was this consensus that we're all pro-democracy and we're all fighting communism. I mean, that was the very basic level and that was useful. And once that was gone, I mean, I actually think the consensus was, it lasted probably longer than it would have done because of, the, because of 9-11. But once it was gone, many people in that party sort of you know, woke up and looked at one another and said, wait, what, you know, if we're not talking about communism, but instead we're talking about, I don't know, gay marriage, you know, or taxation, you know, um, then actually, what do I have in common with these people? Um, And so it, it, you know, it, 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 it worked in that way, too. So you mentioned before
3: that both the Republican and Democratic parties in the United States are these big coalition parties. And we've seen efforts on the Republican side to create both a patriot party on the far right and maybe more of a center right party. There's these kind of rumblings out there to make these things happen. Wondering what you make of those efforts and how feasible
4: they might be here in the US. So I was actually I, 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 I missed it because I had to do something else. I was actually invited to be on a call a few days ago, which was a which was a group of ex Republicans who want to set up a new party. So there's a, you know, and they were, I mean, I'm not going to say they were all people that you've heard of, but they were sort of some were members of Congress, and some were journalists, and you know. So there is a that thought has been kicking around for a long time, I maybe mean, for four years at least. I mean, the difficulty, as you know, is that our political system is not set up to make that easy. You know, the way our voting system works, um, it it very much discourages third parties. Um, and it, it, it's simply very difficult for a third party to win. I mean, it sometimes happens at the state level. Either a third party or an independent candidate can sometimes win. You know, we've seen some state elections where that's happened, Senate elections, and governor elections. Um, but it's 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 made difficult by the way we count our votes and by the way we works. So, I mean, so I would say that what's more likely to happen, um, and this is also what's happened in the past, is that the Republican Party transforms itself in one direction or the other. I mean, it will, there will now be an argument over who controls it, who speaks for it. And, you know, I mean, and I, and I actually don't know what the outcome will be. I mean, but there is a, but, you know, and, and remember that we've had, you know, the parties have had major changes in the past. You know, what we think of as Democrats and the Democrat coalition was totally different 60 years ago. And those of you who know American history will know that the Democrats um, were once the party of the segregationist South, um, that, you know, Democrats in the South were, were, um, were you know, opposed to the civil rights movement. And it was really only after Lyndon Johnson's Civil Rights Act, Um, that there was this transformation of the of the parties and many many black americans voted for the republicans because it was lincoln's party in the first half of the 20th century and then gradually shift their votes to the democratic party as you know but so they you know they kind of the parties kind of switch places so it's not unheard of for them to change in very radical ways i mean were the republican party to become a radical party and you know a party that was openly authoritarian i mean it's heading that way right now that would be very disturbing because, you know, we're a two party system, sooner or later, people get sick of Democrats and they wanna vote for someone else. And so that is how autocratic parties have won in other places, that's how they won in Poland. I mean, um, you know, people get tired of the ruling party and it's natural in democracy for there to be some kind of rotation. So the idea that we would have as our main opposition party, uh, a party committed to autocracy that didn't believe in, you know, counting votes. And I mean, this is, this is, it's very disturbing and very dangerous. And this is how democracy has fallen in other places.
3: Where do you see capitalism and economic inequality fitting into the picture you're painting about democratic erosion and the rise of authoritarianism?
4: So you have to be careful about economics because um, we are, in in a weird way, we are all Marxists in that for everybody likes and wants and prefers to see politics through an economic lens because that also gives us the feeling that we can solve things. I mean, if the problem is inequality and we could solve inequality, then we solve the problem. You see what I mean? And that seems like a matter of taxation and, you know, and then, then you get a clear set of policy choices. And so while I would say that inequality is a huge problem for all of our societies and it's a much bigger problem in the United States than in you know in in many other countries um it's not the only problem i mean inequality does have the effect of i mean it has corrupted our party system and our democracy in a number of ways i mean you know wealthy people and the and it's not even inequality actually it's the campaign finance system um and the existence of dark money in u.s politics i think is is responsible for a huge amount of corruption um, and the numerous attempts to end that and change that that have failed are actually quite tragic. You know, John McCain, uh, the late John McCain, spent a lot of his career trying to fix this um, and never managed it. I mean, it was one of the other than the th- his foreign policy thing, you know, positions which are better known. Um, this was a thing he spent a lot of time on, um, and it and and he failed. And there, our inability to fix that means that money in politics is very distorting. Um, and bad for democracy. I mean, I would also say that um, I would say, as I said, that economic change and the redistribution of wealth and status has also had a big effect on democracy. and this this plays into some of the things I said um, a few minutes ago. I mean, the you know, although many of trump, you know the poorest Americans voted for Joe Biden, many of the middle class people who voted for Trump, are people who feel either for economic or for cultural reasons that they've somehow lost out. Um, that they aren't, you know, the pie isn't growing as fast. Their kids aren't doing as well as they did. You know, they don't see, a, you know, they, they aren't on this upward path to prosperity that so many Americans felt they were on for so many decades. Um, and it's the resentment of that class actually that is uh, you know, even though many of them have pretty good incomes or live in own, their own, their own houses and they have cars, it's the lack of a trajectory and this feeling of comparative loss um, that makes them angry. But they are not the poorest people in the country. So thinking about it from a public discourse perspective, I mean, what's
3: the best counter argument to that sense of disappointment and the lack of
4: trajectory that you were just describing? So that's a, You know, that's kind of the million dollar question. <laughs> Um, how you know, And it comes, that question comes in different forms. Um, one, one form it sometimes comes in is what are we gonna do about the anti-systemic part of the Republican party, the people, not just the people who are at the Capitol on January the 6th, but the people who support them, which is still a high number. I mean, one poll said 20%, which would be extraordinary. Um, maybe it's not really that high, maybe it's 10%, even though that's a large number of Americans. Um, you know, or whatever, or the 30% of the Republican Party who thinks Trump won the election. Um, so how do we speak to them? How do we reach them? That's, that's, um, that's one way to look at the question. And then the other way is how do we rebuild consensus? How do we rebuild the sense that our democracy belongs to all of us and it's one country and we may have differences of opinions, but we're all patriots. Um, how, do we, how do we rebuild that? And they have, they have sort of different answers. Um, you know, I just wrote a piece um, that not everybody liked um which was about which what which was an argument based on the experience of a place like Northern Ireland um, or Columbia, places where they you had a real violent insurgency and you had to knit the country back together then again. And one of the arguments that you get from people who've studied those situations and people who've worked in post-conflict situations is that, you know, what you really need to do is not continue your culture war or, you know get everybody into the same room and have them talk it out because it's not going to work and no one's ever going to get along. The, what you should really do is change the subject. So talk about something else, you know, talk, get the country to focus on something that at least we all care about. And this, by the way, um, does appear to be the strategy of the Biden administration. You have not heard Biden talk about Trump. He didn't talk about impeachment. And when he's asked about it, he brushes the subject away. Um, and he did that during the election campaign too and against the advice of many people by the way I mean there's there's a lot of anger out there at Trump and a lot of people get energy from that anger Um, and you know there you know there there were a lot of people who wanted to campaign with that anger and of course some people did in their own ways Um, but he seems to be of the view that um, you know as I said as the peacemakers in Northern Ireland concluded that the bet that's not the way um to end the problem. And so what he's going to try to do I think is I understand his strategy from what he said in public and from what people I know who work for him say, um as he under- as I understand it the idea is get people to focus on the coronavirus, the vaccines, the economy. And he that's one of the reasons why he wants a you know a big economic package that people will actually feel. You know, it can't be you know, a, a couple of hundred dollars checks for a few people. It has to be something big, and and the, and then I'm sure there will be other big things to come. I imagine there's a healthcare program to come. There's another set of tactics which I'm borrowing actually from a woman who I quote a lot in my book. A woman, there's a there's a sort of I think she's technically a behavioral economist, but she's really more a sociologist called Karen Stenner. Um, whose work I cite a lot, and she writes a lot about the authoritarian predisposition that many people have and and why they have it and, and what, can, what can trigger it. And one of her answers to what do you do about people who have this nostalgia and anger and grievance and who feel society breaking apart in ways and who are upset by the overload of information and the kind of cacophony on the airwaves, one of the things you do is you present them with displays of unity, um, you talk about patriotism, um, you include them in big unifying narratives. I mean, she says even literally, you know, getting people to wear uniforms and march in rows. And, you know, if they see, um, you know, if they, if they see some cause that they can be part of and they can identify with, and that seems unified uh, and seems, you know, in some way, in some element, I don't, don't wanna use the word homogenous, and I don't wanna keep repeating unified, but there, if there's some form of togetherness they can be part of, um, then you might be able to win them over. And you know how this translates into real policy, I'm not sure. I mean, essentially what you need to be able to do is you need to be able to offer people who feel somehow excluded from America, or they don't see their future here, or they're afraid of what it means to have Democrats in charge or people of other races in charge, you need to give them a sense that they too will have a future in this america um, and you need to you need to tell them give them that message symbolically maybe you need to do it through policy anyway that's the those are the those are, those are the answers mm-hmm. that i have i mean those are the those are the answers if you're if you're campaigning and there may be other policy answers too
3: What role do changing demographics in the U.S. play in this picture? I mean, how do you keep your eyes on the prize of that message of unity, given how much demographics have changed and will continue to
4: change over the next couple of decades? It's extremely hard. And demographic change, which, you know, by the way, I'm in favor of, and I would much rather live in a, you know, in a society full of diverse people, because I've spent most of my life living in foreign countries or countries that were foreign to me. They're not when I was, you know, growing up. Um, and so I'm very happy, you know, being around people who are strange and who speak different languages. Lots of people aren't. Um, and again, that's a, you know, finding ways to make them comfortable with this new America, in, in you know, persuading them that they won't be left out of it. Um, and, and I'm sure that, you know, there is a, there's a difficulty here because of course the, the you you know, the innate reaction is to say, well, they're racists, and that may well be true. However, they're still here. (laughs) Um, They live here. You know, they vote. They're Americans. um, And we need some way to integrate them and make them feel part of the polity. And that doesn't mean we need to tolerate racism. That's not what I'm saying at all. But we need to make sure that we don't exclude, you know, you know, exclude either in our rhetoric or in our, in our policy, we don't exclude parts of America. I mean, there's a whole nother long conversation to have actually about, about institutional change. I mean, I would, I would also, um, you know, I think in a way, one of the, you know, the, the fact of our, you know, our very skewed Senate, um, which in which rural America is overrepresented, if we could change that, you know, if we could get DC statehood and Puerto Rican statehood, and you know, we could, and we, and the, and the Republican Party was forced to compete in urban areas or in non-white, non-historically white areas. Um, I think it'd be good for the party, um, and it would make it, it would make it healthier, and it would, you know, but, but that's a, that's kind of a pipe dream I have. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a long way away. But it is, but it's also a kind of answer
3: i mean i guess on a more practical level do you see an opportunity for the center right and the center left in the u.s to work in coalition on some of these reform issues
4: we you know we might see that um we we just saw in the impeachment vote that there is a small but significant group of republicans who are willing to work with democrats um it wasn't enough to break you know to to, um, convict Trump, and it's right. I mean, at the moment, it doesn't look like it's enough to break a filibuster, and that's by the way another institution we could talk about changing, which wasn't in the Constitution and isn't old and wasn't invented by Thomas Jefferson. But there is, but it certainly. I mean, I think that those Republicans do represent the center right. I mean, they they speak for that constituency inside the Republican Party, and there may be there may be some way to work together. I just. You know, I don't know how the numbers add up, and, and it, you know, would probably depend from from bill to bill. Um, I mean, we don't have a multi-party system, you know, so there isn't a way, as I, as, you know, as we've already discussed, for the Republican Party to easily break up into two, and that would allow for some coalition building, you know, in a formal coalition building. But maybe there's some informal coalition building that could be done at the state level, maybe in Congress, maybe in the Senate. So you've talked th-
3: throughout our time together about this notion that we can't treat democracy like it's running water and it's always going to be there. And I think over the past four years, that message has become clear in the US. But I'm wondering how it's translated or how it's being heard outside the US in some of the other countries that you've studied
4: and have written about. You know, sometimes I guess it's the case that people have to suddenly realize that these things touch them personally before they care. there's an interesting example over the last several years in Poland. The, 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 the ruling party's attack on the court system actually happened in 2015 and 2016. Um, and at that time, there were really big demonstrations. There lots of people went on the street to protest the attack on the courts and people stood outside that lit candles outside the courts and so on. But almost everybody at those demonstrations was middle-aged. I mean, it was literally the, it was this anti-communist generation who understood why courts were important and who, you know, because if you think about it, this, the, this topic of independence of the courts is fairly abstract. I mean, it doesn't affect you when you walk down the street, whether the courts are independent or not, you know, why should you care? Um, You know, fast forward a few years later, we recently had a decision taken by one of the packed courts, the, the constitutional tribunal, which whose, whose character was completely changed illegally, you know, and unconstitutionally um, by the government. And they made a decision that affected, uh, I won't go into all the details, but it affected abortion and reproductive rights. Um, suddenly, you know, there were once again, mass demonstrations, except this time they were young people and they were people, you know, very young people uh, I saw in several places, 16, 17, 18. Um, and lots of people in their 20s and 30s, because they had finally understood that, you know, this abstract issue of independent courts affected them personally. Um, and so now you have a, you know, a higher level. it's a little late, unfortunately, because one of the, you know, one of the issues in Poland is that very, very low level of voting among young people. Um, but I hope, you know, I'm hoping that this generational experience of seeing how this, um, you know, seeing how seeing what damage can be done um, will persuade lots of younger people to vote next time. One final question here before we wrap things up. I know it
3: seems like we did just have an election and we did, but the conversation about the next election is also seems to start earlier and earlier. And I'm wondering, you know, what you're going to be watching as we head toward 2022 and even into
4: 2024. You know, I hope that Biden is Successful in changing the subject, um, you know, that he can get us to focus on. And I also think that once the pandemic is over, assuming that the pandemic is over, I don't want to just be too optimistic. Um, once, you know, the vaccines have kicked in, you know, I'm hoping that a burst of economic growth, or at least even if it's not that, even if it's just a return to some kind of normality and an end to this weird world where we all talk to each other on Zoom. Um, I'm hoping that that gives people a sense of optimism. That leads them, you know, in different directions. Um, you know, and, and it ends this, you know, because I do feel that all these problems have been multiplied by the pandemic, by the isolation, by the weirdness. Um, you know, even the conspiracy theories. It's so clear that they can't. You know, the, you know, this disease is an invisible thing that circulates. You know, and you know, and there's so much we don't know about it. You know, it's not very surprising that people. Create, you know, theories about it and imagine it to be doing things that it's not and so on. So I think that will that will return us to I, I don't want to say that I don't want to go back to where we were or some kind of status quo ante, but it will it might help make conversation more normal.
2: I think that there are some there are some lessons that can be extended to the United States and some explanations that can be extended to the United States. And I'm not gonna go on a like American exceptionalism tour, but I will say that the context of the United States is indeed just that. And one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking is about the Southern strategy and mm-hmm. the southern strategy was an us and them strategy um and it happened in 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 the context it started in the context of you know fighting against communism and when the it vietnam was yeah, the vietnam right. war yeah in the vietnam mm-hmm. war and you know after the, you know after the cold war there's still kind of that strand of the southern strategy all the way through trump trump mm-hmm. is a, uh, is an outcome, is, is an outcome of the Southern strategy. So I don't know. I, I do think that this kind of us and them business and how it can, it, it can erode democracy and how there are m- moments in time when Americans have a shared outsider other, I'm using air quotes with my fingers all over here. <laughs> um, but we also have internal dynamics that are that are um, that that pose a threat to democracy um, through th- through that whole time.
1: There's one other thing that I thought that Anne said that I that really uh, resonated with this whole human beings are hopeless theme that we kind of have developed here is this idea of uh, resentment. Uh, she says that there are elites in Poland who were part of the solidarity movement, part of bringing down communism, who feel like their contributions were not sufficiently acknowledged and that there's nothing uh, inherently different between them and the people who ended up famous, rich, powerful, uh, you know, in any some way. And so there is this feeling of uh, resentment that drives much of the uh, anti-democratic authoritarian uh, movement in in Poland. And, you know, we've talked about this before in terms of the resentment that many uh, uh, of the MAGA folks feel in terms of, you know, I see what's going on. in uh, in urban communities and how wealthy people are and how how many opportunities there are for them and their children. And I'm doing just as, I'm working just as hard. I'm just as committed to, uh, you know, providing for my family. And because I live in Youngstown, Ohio or wherever, um, I can't do that. And so that makes me angry and resentful. And it just is striking to me how powerful that drive is i mean this is straight out of nietzsche right this is this is how jewish morality developed i'm not going to get into the whole thing but the point is that for nietzsche resentment is one of the most powerful uh political forces there is and i think you know you're seeing that manifested uh both among the elites and among the uh uh, you know the non-elites i
2: couldn't agree more I think I think it is important to put our finger on resentment and I think it's also important for us to think about how people will dip into a reservoir of resentment in order to gain political power and and the fact of the matter is is that we need I was reading this uh article uh, in the in the democracy journal. And I think that's what it's called about bipartisanship versus unity and bipartisanship can be, I think the word they use is anemic, but unity is producing policies that help a wide array of people so that we can walk toward a kind of multiracial and, you know, more equitable democracy, but boy you know resentment can it's it's a powerful weapon that can be wielded to 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 even kind of uh you know go against someone's own own self-interest
1: yeah um i'm just uh was it yesterday yeah i guess just yesterday in class i was talking about i was showing them uh videos of uh famous populists in american history so i showed them huey long charles coughlin and uh george wallace and man Every one of them, there is a threat. Every one of them, it's not your fault. Every one of them, I'm the person who's going to help you get back what is rightfully yours. It is an incredibly powerful political strategy.
2: Yeah, I, I'm curious to know what you think about um, Anne's recommendation to, um, you know, just change the subject.
1: Yeah, it is really interesting. She's looking at, science and she's also looking at experience in other countries in order just to say you know look if we just keep arguing about this we're not going to get anywhere we're not going to be able to move past this i mean there's a part of me that absolutely does not want to do that right mm-hmm. there's a part of me that wants to insist on the moral and political failures of so many people in in uh on the on the right right now but there is an argument to be made that, and you can see this, and she mentioned this too, in Biden's choices of words and actions to just say, you know what, let's just work on something that we can work on. I don't know. What do you think about it, Candace?
2: Can we, I mean, we're calling this whole situation the big lie. Mm-hmm. Can we move past the big lie without confronting what the truth is? The, the You know, so much about reconciliation is an acknowledgement of what happened, but implicitly a promise that we're not going to do it again. And so, you know, just to say like, okay, let's talk about coronavirus or the economy or the vaccine. We are going to have another set of elections in 2022, in 2024. And we see that there are Republicans at the state level who are introducing hundreds of bills to prevent Mm -hmm. people from voting and to make it more difficult from voting. And that part of all of that is rooted in what we're calling the big lie. So I'm a little troubled about this kind of idea of let's change the subject without ensuring that we're not going to have this situation again, that we're not going to see people try to capture, uh, you know, state governors, that they're not going to try to make a claim that voting is fraudulent, that et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I would like to know how changing the subject is going to ensure that we don't make the same, not the same mistakes, that's not the word I'm using, that we, that we don't see um, local, state and federal level insurrections in the future.
1: All, all I would say is, I mean, I think it's fair to ask, and I don't know what the answer is, but I think it's fair to ask: what strategy is more likely to get you where you want to go faster? Is it? Is it? And 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 it just may be that the that the best way to get there is to ratchet down the animosity and and the and the heat. And so if you start talking about something else. You can start. You can start talking about reestablishing these norms. I, I again. I just feel like this is just bespeaks where we are as a country, and just how um, you know the idea that oh, okay, well now we can move on. Now, now, now that that's over, we can get back to being America again. I just. I, I mean, I think this argument just bespeaks the fact that that's just not so. We are in a. We remain in a very precarious situation.
2: So you agree with me.
1: You know, even when I don't, I try not to make it explicit because you scare me.
2: (laughs) Well, with that said.
1: (laughs) Anyway, no, uh, no, I I really um, I I find uh, arguing with you to be very, uh, very always engaging and always interesting because I always learn something. So uh, and I hope that's true for the people listening as well. So anyway, um, so thank you to both of you and to everybody else for listening. Uh, I'm Chris Beam.
2: I'm Candace Watts smith Thanks for listening.
3: Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer jen bortz and chris kugler and additional support comes from wpsu's andy grant emily reddy chris allen and craig johnson if you enjoyed what you heard today please consider leaving us a rating and a review in apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening and we'll see you next week
0: Well, that's it for this episode swap with Democracy Works from Penn State's McCartney Institute. We hope you enjoyed it. But if you really miss our show, head over right now to the Democracy Works feed on your favorite podcast player. They're featuring our interview about Russia and the Russian opposition with New Yorker staff writer Masha Gessen. We'll be back in two weeks with one of our own rebroadcasts. Hope to catch you then.